know, I came across a very interesting story this week. I try to read all kinds of articles and magazines and news things to try to stay up on as many things as I can and try to um, get a perspective from different points of view and different um, careers and things of that nature. And I came across an interesting story about a man named Peter Petrovich. Uh, he lived in Russia under communism. And at the time, under communism, there were, there were a lot of people who were stealing from factories. They would work in the factories during the day, and they would steal stuff from the factories when they went home in the evenings. And well, the government noticed this, and so they posted guards outside of every factory to keep people from doing this, and they recruited guards who were from the town that the factory was in. The idea being the guard would know the factory workers and would be able to recognize if they were stealing something um, just from daily life. Well, there was this one guard at this one factory that the man I mentioned, Peter Petrovich, worked at. And uh, the guard was stationed there, and out comes Peter at the end of the workday with a wheelbarrow piled up with something and a tarp on top. And the guard says, all right, hang on, Petrovich. And he comes over to him and says, what do you got there in the wheelbarrow under the tarp? And Peter says, oh, it's just shavings and, and sawdust. And he says, well, okay, right. You're going to take garbage home. And the guard takes the uh, handle of the wheelbarrow and dumps it over, and it spills out. And sure enough, it's just shavings and sawdust. And uh, the guard says, all right, pick it up. You can go on your way. Next day, into work that goes. Peter Petrovich comes out of the factory, wheelbarrow full of something under a tarp. And the guard says, all right, what is it? Just show it to me this time. And he pulls the tarp off. It's sawdust and shavings from the factory floor. And he goes, just if you're cleaning up the factory, great. Take the garbage away. You're stealing garbage. Thank you for that. And so he goes, he goes, we're trying to find, as Petrovich is leaving, we're just trying to find real thieves. We don't care about people taking away garbage. And he goes, this goes on for days, weeks. And finally the guard is just getting really frustrated trying to figure this out and, and thinking, why in the world? I mean, obviously this guy doesn't love the government that much and, and the, to be taking away the garbage every day. He's, and it's not according to his job. So what's going on? And so he, he stops him because he knew this guy. Remember, he's from the hometown. They grew up together. And he goes, okay, Peter, listen, everybody else is gone. It's just me and you. If I promise not to arrest you, I, and as though you could believe the guard, but he knew this guy. And he said, if, if, if I promise not to arrest you, will you tell me what's going on? And he goes, I'm not really stealing sawdust and you know, uh, uh, shavings. He goes, I know that. What is going on? He goes, well, I am stealing something. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> you see, it was right in front of his eyes the whole time, but he had been distracted and never realized that Petrovich had now taken like 20, 30 wheelbarrows right out from under the guard's nose, and he never realized it. You know, sometimes we can get distracted and miss something that's right in front of our face. We can get distracted by something that we think is an easy thing or something that in our mind we've classified it as easy. And in so doing, we really miss the point of what's going on, miss the heart of the matter. And we're going to look at this in a certain way here in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This may be a familiar story to some of you. It may not to many of you. But in John chapter 2, last week we took a look at Jesus' first public miracle and how his mother Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, had had an expectation of what Jesus should have done at this wedding. And Jesus did not do it according to Mary's expectation. He did it according to God's timetable. And he 
made water into wine, which was a sign of the Son of God coming. And right after that happens, there's Passover in the land of Israel. And it was a national holiday, Passover. It was a celebration, a remembering of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And so all Jews everywhere were a part of this celebration. And so this is, here in John chapter 2, the first of those Passovers during Jesus' public ministry. There's three of them. And the last Passover during Jesus' public ministry was when he was crucified. And so this is the first one. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at this point, and a lot of Jews would. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Jews would descend upon Jerusalem during this Passover celebration. And uh, Jesus went with his disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so look at John chapter 2. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, if you don't know much about Jewish culture or much about the Bible, that's fine, but what's going on here is there would be a sacrifice, there were sacrifices every day to uh, cover sins, uh, they would sacrifice depending on how much money they had, depending on uh, you know their economic status. They would might sacrifice something smaller, or if they were a little bit more wealthy, they might sacrifice something bigger, or if their sins were bigger, it might be something bigger. There was a whole list. And during Passover, they would come, and they would do this. They would come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, and they would sacrifice. But if they were coming from a great distance, they would have to either bring their animal but if they brought it from a great distance, the animal might be damaged, and then it wouldn't be worthy to be sacrificed. And so they, the temple provided the service that you could purchase an animal there to sacrifice. But if you were also coming from a different region, you might not have the right kind of money, the right currency, to purchase something in the market there, or purchase one of the animals to sacrifice. So they had these guys, these currency guys, who would exchange your Roman money, because in the temple they didn't want to take money that had the face of Caesar on it. They wanted more holy money. And so you would have to exchange your Roman money for temple money. And then you could go over to the guys down the row and you could buy an animal from them. And so it was a service that they provided. You could buy an animal to be sacrificed. And now something is happening, though, in, in, in what is going on here, these, these uh, people. Because you notice it at the beginning of verse 14. It says, in the temple. This isn't outside the doors. This isn't in the foyer. This isn't any of that. You see, the way the temple was made up is you had the center of the temple, which was the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Gold box inside of which was the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's staff that had buds on it, and a, a bucket of manna. They didn't have KFC back then. It was a bucket of manna. And all this was in there, and the, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And it was in the Holy of Holies. It was supposed to be so holy that only the high priest could walk into that room one time a year. Only one time a year. One guy. And so uh, that was that room. They had an outer room where the priests were. They had a, an area uh, where the Jewish men would come and worship that was surrounded by walls. Outside of that, they had an area where Jewish women could come and worship, surrounded by walls. Outside of that, they had a place where Gentiles could come and worship. And it says in the temple, the word used for temple there, this is in the temple court. This is in the court of the Gentiles is where this is happening. The money changers and all of the animals lined up there being sold. So you got to picture it. The court of the Gentiles was where they worshipped. It was their sanctuary. It's like this room here, okay? 
So it's like we removed all of the pews in this section, and we had a bunch of tables set up for guys to change money, and we had oxen, and we had lambs, and we had pigeons and birds, and you had the guys who were selling them that were haggling. Have you ever been to a market in another country? They haggle. They're not quiet at all. And so this is going on, all in the room where the people are supposed to be singing and supposed to be listening to messages. This is what's happening in the room where they're supposed to be worshiping. So that's what's going on here. And Jesus walks into this, okay? Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, we read this, and this may be a familiar story. This happens again in several years when Jesus comes back right before he is going to be crucified. Uh, It's all set up again, the money changers and the animals again inside the sanctuary, and Jesus does it again. That time he doesn't do it with a whip. Uh, He says uh, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Here he says you've made it into a house of trade. But notice Jesus isn't, you know, driving them out because of what they are doing. The act that they're doing isn't bad. It's a service. I mean, it's a good thing. He drives them out because of the location that they are in. He doesn't see this as something that's nice, something that's fair. You see, all those animals and the money and, and, and the marketplace people uh, aren't disrupting the worship of the Jews because the Jews would leave that room and go into the court of the women where they would worship, the Jewish women. And the Jewish men would go through that into their inner court where they would worship. So it wasn't bothering any of the Jews. It was just bothering the Gentiles, people who were not raised on God and who were supposed to be coming to God. How would you feel if you were totally unchurched and you didn't know anything about God or Jesus, but for some reason you came into the room to worship, but you had to walk through the animals that had done their animal things at the doorway to get in? Would you probably turn around and leave and say, I'm not into this today? And so that's what was going on. The people who were not raised in this way were having to worship in among all of that. That's difficult. That's hard. And so they have set this up here. And so Jesus isn't necessarily saying what the people, you know, offering the service of changing the money and the animals was bad. He's saying the location was bad. Because honestly, it was Jews who set it up. I mean, it was straight racist. I mean, they did it in the court of the Gentiles because they didn't care about the Gentiles. It was dishonoring to the Gentiles. But not only that, by doing it in the court of the Gentiles, what they were doing was saying that the worship of the Gentiles was not as valuable as theirs. If it disrupted the worship of the Gentiles, that's fine, because they're just Gentiles. I mean, they're not Jews, and so it doesn't really matter if their worship gets disrupted, because their worship's not valuable. And so by communicating that, they're saying that God doesn't love the Gentiles as much as God loves other people, the Jews. And so Jesus walks into this, and that's what he's uh, uh, protesting here. It's not any of the social things. It's not the, the underlying dynamics. It's the fact that they're communicating to the Gentiles God doesn't love you as much as the Jews. God doesn't love you as much. And so Jesus drives these, things, these animals all out with a whip. When you picture Jesus, you ever picture him in your head with a whip? 
You know, we pictured him on a cross, or we picture him with a child on his knee, or we picture him the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the Son of God with a whip. Sits down for a moment, makes a whip, and then drives them out. And the way it's worded, <laughs> he could be using the whip on the, 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 the traitors of the animals as well as on the animals themselves. It doesn't actually say that he's mad about the situation, but he's trying to get across, you guys should not be here in this place. It would, they could have set up all of this outside of the temple. The problem was there were several entrances to the temple, so they'd have to set up several of these. It was an inconvenience to do this in a way that would communicate to the Gentiles that God loves you. And so for their own convenience, the Jews set this up as a distraction to the Gentiles' worship. For their own convenience, they set this up this way. And so Jesus drives them all out says, get out of here. And what he does with the whip and the way he does this, this is, is an action that is similar to some of the Old Testament prophets. The way he does this and the manner and the way he speaks, it's similar to Old Testament prophets. And so being in the church, in the temple, all the, the church leaders would recognize, okay, he's acting like a prophet here. I mean, I mean, it sounds very much like Jeremiah. If you've ever, ever read the book of Jeremiah, he did some weird stuff. Right? God told him to do some weird stuff. He tied himself up for days and days and days trying to communicate something like really tight. God said, go out, tie yourself up, lay there, and communicate. And one time God told Jeremiah to, to construct a tiny model of the city of Jerusalem and build stuff outside of it like uh, siege ramps and things of people coming to attack. So it's like Jeremiah's playing with you know, kid toys and God says, use that to illustrate what's going to come. And so and he did a bunch of other things, but one of the things that he did was similar to this, and Jesus picks up a whip and does this and speaks this, and the Jewish leaders would recognize, okay, he's acting like a prophet. And so they respond to that in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're basically saying, prove that you have the authority to do this, all right? You think we were disrupting the worship of the, the Gentiles? Now you come in here with a whip and drive everything out the front door? You don't think that's disrupting? And so they say, what authority do you have to do this? Show us a sign. Prove it to us. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, you know, let's come back to that. Let's finish reading this, and we're going to come back to something Jesus said right there. He was being inflammatory on purpose. Verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? It had. Actually, the temple construction wasn't done yet. It was going to take several more decades to be completed. And so, and so they say, it's taken 46 years, and you, you're telling us you can build this thing in three days. He's not talking about the physical building. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew that people would believe. They believed his signs, but they didn't really believe that he was the Son of God coming to save the world. They were willing to follow him as long as he was doing cool stuff, as long as he was popular. 
As long as people were talking about him, like, man, did you see that miracle Jesus did? As long as he was doing that, people were willing to go after him in a shallow kind of way, but not in a deep way when things got difficult. They weren't ready to follow him when things got difficult and he got arrested and he got crucified. They weren't willing to follow him then, except for a, a few, a couple handfuls of people. But I want you to go back up when Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I love Jesus but he's saying this knowing it's going to be misinterpreted he says this knowing the people hearing it are going to get frustrated at what he's saying they're going to misinterpret it and they're going to get mad because they misinterpreted it they think he's making a terroristic threat here he's going to destroy the building they actually bring this very thing back up at his trial in a few years didn't he say he was going to destroy this building didn't he say that and so here he says it but he uses a different word for the word temple than was used earlier in the passage. See, back up in verse 14 and 15, the word for temple used there means the temple complex, all of its courts. The, temp the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the Gentiles. It means the whole thing. And Jesus here uses a word that is not the same. It is more of a, not a physical location. It means where God is worshipped, where God resides where God lives, where God dwells. So he uses a completely different concept than the one they're talking about. He uses this one here. Where God is worshipped, where God resides. The idea, actually if you look back up at verse 17 when he talks about the house, uh, zeal for your house will consume me, quoting from the Old Testament passage, his disciples saying Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Here, the word house there is the same kind of deal. It's a dwelling place, a residence, where one's presence is located. So the emphasis of the words of Jesus and the quote from the Old Testament in, in verse 17 is about the presence of God. It's where the presence of God is. So Jesus told them, you destroy this temple right here, this body. You destroy this, and in three days I will raise it up. You destroy it, and in three days I will raise it up. It's, he was God. It's where God's presence was. It's where the presence of God resided. But the people here, in, in, you know, they, even though they thought the presence of God resided physically in the temple, they were cheapening the presence of God by bringing in the distraction into the worship space. They were cheapening the presence of God. They didn't realize it, but they were allowing, uh, for the sake of convenience, they were allowing the distraction to cheapen how they thought the presence of God was. But what's interesting about the presence of God, because the presence of God is with us everywhere, everywhere. And Jesus was introducing this idea, not only here, but throughout his ministry, that the presence of God is with us as believers everywhere we go. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. Jesus said it in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you to the very end. That's a promise from the words of Maybe we should do a sermon series on the promises of Jesus. That's one of them. I am with you. I am with you. Has anybody ever felt alone before? Felt by yourself? Some of you are lying, <laughs> but most of us, the vast majority of us, have felt alone by ourselves, completely isolated, even in a room full of people. But Jesus is always with us. Even if we don't acknowledge it, he's with us. I've given you the illustration before of Jonah, the belly of a whale. He was alone, but God was with him the whole way. 
as he was running thousands of miles away from where God wanted him to go. God was with him. It just took him turning to God in the belly of a big fish to realize God was there the whole time. God's presence is always there. Promise of Jesus, I am with you always to the end. The presence of God is there. Paul gives us this in an in a illustration using the words that, of, that Jews would know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think it's, uh, it's verse 9. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple. Your, so, I mean, he's, this, these, these very things that Jesus is saying, you know, destroy this temple. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Your body is the temple. So your body is a temple. Your body is the, remember, what is the, the temple, the word Jesus used? It's the residence. It's the, the place that God lives. He resides. His presence is. So your body is where his presence is. So everywhere you go, his presence is with you. Even if you go to some places you probably shouldn't be going because you are going as a believer in Christ. His presence is going with you because it's a promise. He will never leave you. So even if you're in the midst of a terrible place, you find yourself in a life stage you didn't think you would ever be in. You find yourself in a, house, in a, in a trap house, a place you should not have walked into. His presence is with you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, his presence is is with you because as a uh, you know being your body being the temple having the presence of God with you the spirit of God with you wherever you go is holy ground you remember God coming to Moses in the burning bush to take your your sandals off the place where you're standing is holy ground because God's presence was there made it holy and so if God's presence is within us and we're the temple of the Holy Spirit everywhere we step is holy ground everywhere you step even a church building with green carpet and green pews, even a school, even the courthouse, even the jail, even the bathroom, even the gas station, even Walmart, even the grocery store, everywhere you step is holy ground. Everywhere, because you have the presence of God with you. And so when everywhere you step is holy ground, everything you do is to be worship-filled. Worship-filled. Filled with worship. Because everywhere you step is holy ground. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a lot of times we relegate worship to just being music. We say in our minds, we say worship music, and we talk about the worship, we're talking about music, but that's not the, the idea we get from Scripture. Uh, that's an idea that, you know, iTunes has told us because they have a classification for worship music. This idea of worship is to be how we live our lives filled with where everything you do can be worship filled you can do the dishes and be worshiping you can take out the trash and be worshiping you can do be doing the lawn and worshiping you could be doing your job and worshiping you could be talking to the people at your job and be worshiping you can be worshiping filling up your car with gas you can be worshiping with your finances giving to the lord trusting him we have that basket giving to the lord you can be worshiping him through giving worshiping him through your own generosity worshiping him in helping somebody else worshiping him and having a conversation at church whoever thought you could worship a church you can worship god anywhere everywhere in anything you do it's all about where your attention's at why are you doing what you are doing 
Well, I mean, think about those, those Jews with the temple. They had brought all of those animals and everything into the temple, not for the worship of God. They brought that stuff inside the sanctuary for their own convenience, for their own preferences, because they thought about themselves more than they thought about somebody else. And it undoubtedly turned other people away from God, from worship of God. You see, as a believer, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we have the light of Jesus within us, we carry that light everywhere we go. I mean, that's what these candles represent up here. That's why we have these candles sitting on these front pews. You know, it's a reminder that we need to be telling people about Jesus and introducing the light of Jesus into their lives. And so I've encouraged you, if you tell somebody about Jesus and they come to know Jesus, bring those candles and put it up here on the front, uh, on the, the platform, and I'll light them on next Sunday. If there's candles up here, they will be lit next Sunday, representing somebody who has been come to Jesus in the last seven days. I mean, these were here from last week, so, you know, some people came to know Jesus, I guess, within the last 14 days. But if you have more, come and add them, and we'll have five candles, six candles, seven candles, if you're telling somebody about Jesus. If you need a reminder and you haven't been here, come and grab one of these little candles on these pews and take it home as a reminder you need to be telling somebody about Jesus and lighting that light within them. Because having the Holy Spirit within us, walking everywhere we go with, with the Spirit of God within us, carrying that light everywhere we go is holy ground. It is our responsibility given to us by God, by Jesus in Matthew 28:19, to make disciples to tell people about Jesus, to bring the light to them. But a lot of times we don't. Even though we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of God within us, sometimes we, we try to hide our light. We hide it under a bushel. Even though we may sing the song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, thank you, Brielle. I'm going to let it shine. Let me give you an illustration of this. If we truly have the light of Jesus within us, it is difficult to hide a light. I got some flashlights here. Every one of these flashlights has a light in it. Every one of these flashlights works. We tested them all this morning. They all work. And now I've got a pile of flashlights up here on the stage. A pile of lights. And if I get saved, I've, I'm given a light. If I'm brought to the pile of flashlights, then I'm given, I, I receive a light within me. That light is in me that I can take and I can shine. And now I've got it. And now everyone in the room can see my light. I've got it. I've got a flashlight. Have you ever tried to hide a flashlight? I mean, you can stick it in your pocket, but you can still see the light in my pocket. It's still there. You can see it a little bit. It's there. I mean, I, you know, I've got a flashlight on my phone, and at night sometimes I'll walk into the, uh, where Ethan sleeps, our, our two-and-a-half-year-old, and I'll stick the, the flashlight in my pocket, and the flashlight shines, and it still lights up the room even though it's in my pocket. And so you gotta, it's hard to hide a light when you've got one lit. You can do it. The easiest way to hide the light that you've been given is to shine it on yourself because now you can't see it. It's lit, but you don't know. It's still lit. It's still shining, but it's not shining on anyone. And you see, if I've got the light of Jesus within me, and, and I've got this light, and, and, and I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, and everywhere I step is holy ground, new holy ground, new holy ground, new holy ground. Even back there where that big crack is that goes to the center of the earth, you step on that, 
holy ground. Everywhere you, if you didn't know that, there's a large crack right over there. It's right behind the Lindley's. In the, you're going to sink if you go, don't sit over, anyway. It's the, the light of Christ within me. So my responsibility then with the light is to show people who are in the darkness how they can come to the pile of flashlights. You don't have lights, none of you in the room. You don't have a, one of these. You may have one on your phone. You don't have a little $2 flashlight from Walmart. All these have D batteries in them, and it's got a flashlight and a D battery. D batteries are expensive. Next time you need D batteries, go to Walmart and buy a flashlight. <laughs> anyway, and so you come up here. My responsibility with the light of Jesus within me is to come to those who don't have a light and bring them to the pile. I can't make them pick one up, but I can say, look, it's right here. Now you can see where you're going. Now you can have confidence stepping in the darkness. Now you can have resolution and peace and strength in the stepping of your, where you are, are, are moving. It's all right here. This is the lights that God has for us, and we shine them wherever we go because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, because we have within us the light of Jesus, and we take it and we shine it everywhere we go. But we've got to bring people to the pile of flashlights. got to bring them to the pile. He sends us out into the world with the light of Jesus to bring them to the pile of flashlights. He didn't give you that job to make money. Surprise. He gave you that job because you have a light within you. And the people at your job need a light. The people who are coming to get a service from you need a light. He didn't send you to Walmart because you forgot Cheerios when you went the day before. He sent you back to Walmart because somebody there needed a light. Maybe he intentionally made you forget so you could go back the next day. He didn't send, you didn't go to the gas station just at that particular moment because you needed gas in your car because the person right across from you needs a conversation. There, I, I had that situation happen to me not too long ago. I've told the story. It was like a month ago. The guy across from me had the exact same vehicle I did, and we started a conversation about our vehicles. He, initi he pulled up, got out, he initiated the conversation. And it was one of those moments that God said, yeah, I didn't send this random guy from Indiana to come to Easy Mart on a random Saturday morning because he just needed gas. It's because I'm going to stick him right next to somebody who's got a light. And that guy needs Jesus, and he didn't have Jesus. And so we've got to bring people to the pile of flashlights, bring people to the lights that we have within us. You have the light of Jesus in your hands to light the world. You have the light. You have it to light the world, to bring them to the pile of light, to bring anybody and everybody, irregardless, honestly, of how you lived yesterday. You say, I, I can't go tell that person about Jesus. They know who I was. Yeah, yeah. Man, what a reason to bring them. That's who I was. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me today. Jesus can change anybody and everybody. Jesus loves anybody and everybody, all the same. That's why Jesus drove these people out. Jesus loves everybody, and he wants everybody to come to him. He tells us that in his word, it is God's will for all people to be saved. And yet sometimes we choose not to follow after him. Sometimes we, God's followers who have the light, we choose to hide our light and not tell anybody. Most of us do. Statistics tell us 
of believing Christians do this. And don't show anybody the light they have. Don't show them the light that is within them. But you've been handed a light. You have within you the Holy Spirit of God. The presence of God. The presence of God that descended on the the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And it was so thick that nobody could walk in the doors. You have that presence of God within you. It's not some, you know, concept. It is reality. You have God's presence, God's spirit dwelling within you. The same word that that Jesus uses there in John chapter 2. The concept that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You are the temple. The Spirit of God resides in you, chooses to dwell in you, even if you don't make the best decisions. Even if you say words that aren't the best words in the world. Even if you aren't the greatest example to your kids or grandkids. The Spirit of God resides in you so that you're better tomorrow than you are today. You don't got to be perfect. We can't be. We're, we're, we're human. We still have the, 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 the taint of sin in our lives we can only grow closer to him make progress not perfection we're moving towards perfection because that is who he is and taking our light and showing people yeah I messed up but Jesus forgives me I know people in this room you've messed up Jesus forgives you enemy will keep bringing it back to your head making you feel guilty there's no guilt in Jesus There's conviction in Jesus, but not for the point of if if you did something yesterday and you ask Jesus, you you acknowledge it to Jesus, I need forgiveness for this. He's already forgiven in in Christ in his death and resurrection. And you move on, you repent. When it it comes back to your mind tomorrow and, and the enemy says, man, you did that thing, that's not Jesus. That's not. That's the enemy bringing guilt to try to cripple the effect that you have for the kingdom. I mean, we can see that in the lives of the people that God used most dramatically in Scripture. David, you know, a murderer and an adulterer. And after he did that, God called him a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because he did those things. It wasn't because he was faithful when he killed Goliath. It was because he repented and followed Jesus from that point forward. We see that with, with Paul. He was a murderer. He was anti-God. He, he was killing people who wanted to follow Jesus. And God called him out to go and take the light everywhere, everywhere he went. Even though his career was a tent maker, he, he was called out to go and be the, the, the mouth of Jesus everywhere he went. You are a light, and you've been handed the light of God with the presence of the Spirit within you to take the light into your own family, to take the light into your job, to take the light into your neighborhood, to take the light into your kids and into your grandkids. You say they're already believers. Yeah, but they need more Jesus. Believers need more Jesus just as much as unbelievers do. We all need more Jesus. And so you've been handed a light to take to those. Will you take that light? Will you use it? for God's purposes. Not try to hijack the, the, the influence you've been given for your own ends, but use it for the ends of Jesus, for the purposes of Jesus. You've been handed a light to bring light into the world. Everywhere you step is holy ground. Everywhere you go is holy ground because of him who is within you. 
So let's make the world more holy by bringing Jesus into the lives of those around us. How are, you know, I, I mentioned this phrase several years ago, taken to queen back for the kingdom. It's only going to happen when we introduce the king into the lives of those who live here. That's how lives will be changed. Not because of some strategy we've come up with, not because of some anything that we've developed in our minds or how we can make something happen here or there or pour into this person's life. If we're not pouring Jesus into their life, it's not going to change. He's the only one that can bring any change. The people living in your house, your spouse is not going to change because you nag them over and over and over and over and over again. They're not. They're going to resent you, but they're not going to change. They're going to change because of Jesus. Your kids are not going to change because you beat them over the head and they start dodging your calls. They're only going to change because of Jesus. Your parents are not going to change. Not just because, you know, they may be hard-headed and you get frustrated with them and you feel like you know better than them. They're only going to change because of Jesus. That neighbor who keeps mowing onto your side of the lawn and kicking over your trash cans and putting his burn pile on your property, he's not going to change without Jesus. The government's not going to change without Jesus. The world's not going to change without Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only way is with Jesus. So will you, 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 you people who have Jesus, will you take the light that you've been handed and take Jesus into the circle of influence that you have, and we all have it, Will you take Jesus into that circle? You know, some of you right now have been given a name of someone, maybe even a face of someone in your life that you need to bring to the pile of flashlights. Some of you, a couple handfuls of you, I, I would guess, knowing by what God just said. And you're already arguing in your mind of how not to take them the light of Jesus. You're trying to get out of it. Don't. Don't get out of it, get into it. Some of you need to, before you go to small group in just a second, some of you need to pick up your cell phone and you need to call that person before you get there. Because God may have already been preparing those people for, for your call. When I talked to that gas station guy who was also driving a Honda Pilot, I had no idea the road that God had brought him to get him to that point. But God had been preparing him for that conversation in the same way that whoever God has just put in your head, he's been preparing that person for the conversation you're going to have so that you can bring a light into their darkness. Bring the light. Don't say, well, I need to be a little bit more holy. Well, I need to know a little bit more about the Bible. Well, I need to know a little bit more about this, that, or the other thing. Don't say that. That's the enemy trying to put off what God's put in you. Do it now. Nobody, you're never going to know the most. You're never going to be as prepared. I mean, it's like when somebody says, I'm not going to have kids until we're ready. You're not ready, ever. The moment you think you're ready, well, you're deceiving yourself. You have, even if you've already got kids, you've got no idea what's coming down the pipeline. Every kid's different. Same way, when God tells you to tell somebody about Jesus, to bring a new eternal life into the world, we don't know what's going to happen. You, you, you can't predict. All you can do is obey.
So whoever God has put in your head right now, you need to tell them about Jesus. Bring the light to them. Be the light in their world. The moment you step in home, maybe that person's not here today, and you left a house and you left them sitting there, you step back in that house, you're bringing holy ground with you. So be the holy ground in their life today. 